a state of mind called Beautiful. It's a book by Sayadaw Pandita and Kate Wheeler that inspired the title of tonight's talk, A State of Mind Called Beautiful. I'll talk about goodness of heart, goodwill, kindness. To begin with, I'd like to quote the Dalai Lama with his statement, My religion is kindness. It's the credo of this talk. We all know that goodness of heart, kindness, wonderful and desirable inner qualities or attitudes. The state of heart and mind of kindness feels good for oneself, feels good for others, for those around us. People who are kind are appreciated, respected, loved. We hear of people who live their entire life in the service of this powerful human capacity of heart. And we're deeply impressed by them. Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, many others. Probably we're quite convinced that it would be best to abide in this mode of kindness. Why then do we find it often so difficult? Why do we often fail when it would be most needed? And we all know why. Because resistance, fear, annoyance, or even anger or hatred get in the way of our best intentions. This implies, or this asks of us, that we seriously look at and deal with these unwholesome, difficult emotions of anger or hatred or all the rest. That this is possible in a successful manner, that this can successfully be done, the Buddha emphasized already two and a half thousand years ago. His quite famous statement could be boiled down to, yes, we can. <laughs> he says that. Just quoting the Buddha. <laughs> give up what is unwholesome. You can give up the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If the giving up of the unwholesome would cause harm and suffering, I would not ask you to give it up. But because the giving up of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, give up what is unwholesome. Cultivate the good, kindness, which is truly beautiful. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not encourage you to do it. If the cultivation of the good would cause harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But since the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. Sounds inspiring, 
and convincing, especially when a Buddha, an awakened one, says it. And yet we know it's not always easy. To finally be able to give up aversion, anger, hatred, we need to study and investigate them. We need to get to know them quite intimately when they are present. Getting to know them is actually the opposite of what we would like to do and of what we often or even usually do, trying to get rid of them. We don't like this intense feeling of frustration, of hurt, of disappointment, or whatever it is that triggered the aversion or anger in the first time, first place. We just can't stand it. It's unpleasant, it's painful, it's undesirable, unwanted. Therefore, away with it. There's different ways we try to get rid of it. One is we express the anger, maybe in words or deeds even. If we're people who try to be good boys or good girls or good Buddhists, and we only think it, think it in our minds, trying not to express this outwardly, that's certainly better, but not much better, really. Or we know that expressing anger and aversion isn't helpful for ourselves. We know usually it also has a counterproductive effects. If we tell someone that we think that they're an idiot, it's quite rare that they tell us, me an idiot? Oh, I see. I didn't realize. Thank you for, for making me aware of it. It's not usually what you get as a response. So we suppress. We swallow the anger. We clench our teeth or we try to smile until we blow up one day. So not very helpful either. To study and investigate anger, aversion, demands our willingness to mindfully bear it when it's present, to feel it, to allow for it when it is present. It's different from expressing it or from pushing it away. And it's not as difficult as one thinks it could be, but it's quite unfamiliar and unusual and somewhat unpleasant. It doesn't become pleasant just because we allow it to be there. It can be intensely unpleasant. But as soon as we're able to do this, we are already free in some sense. Not free of the feeling, but being willing and able to be with it. The problem is already solved. The experience may still be unpleasant for a while, but then it all passes, and it passes all by itself. <clears throat> There's no difficult feeling or emotion. Even the one you thought it'll always be there for the rest of my life, that state. It can come again, it can come many times, but they don't stay. In retreats, they rarely make it beyond the, the lunch bell. <laughs> they may come again after. But it's so interesting. Or we have this really intense aversion and we know this is not going away so easily. And then <clears throat> at the end, 
of the sitting, just by coincidence, we remember we had it, but then some other thought came up and we completely forgot. Things change by themselves anyway, including unpleasant, difficult emotions. So being able to just <clears throat> being with it, feeling it, allowing it, seeing what it is, seeing what happens to it, it sounds like little, but it's a lot. So we need to learn to allow the anger to be there, to bear it, then to look at it, feel it. It's easier to practice, to exercise it with small incidents. And yet exactly with these minor events, we often find it unnecessary. I think it's a good idea when we get a little annoyed, a little irritated, to actually practice being with it. Maybe in daily life, you know, the subway train takes off just in front of us. You know, we came running and we we're just about to open the door and zoop, it goes, and the guy saw it. <laughs> we know. <clears throat> or just, you know, he didn't clean his dirty dishes again. Or a pretty glass shatters. Or a car doesn't stop at the pedestrian crosswalk seeing that we were about to cross. Or a cloud covers the sun. Or if it's really hot, the cloud that covered the sun moves <laughs> either way. Or the internet is jammed and it's way too slow all day. You know. Or here in the food line, you know, he serves himself in absurd slow motion. He could do that anywhere. Why does he have to do it in, in, in the food line? And now, and apparently it already happened in this retreat, he also takes my seat. She showers for hours, endlessly. And she knows, you know, people are waiting outside. It's all real life here or elsewhere. To use those opportunities, say, oh, okay. Let me feel how it feels right now. There's so much to see, to study, and to learn here. And more than anything, whenever we're willing to just be with these unwholesome feelings, we have the right attitude, the right inner attitude. And that's most essential here in our practice. The attitude of being willing, being able, and capable to allow things, to have things the way they are, to feel things, to see things the way they are. It's an attitude of mindful interest, welcoming openness. And that already contains metta. It's a a central aspect of this kindness of heart, this attitude. Thich Nhat Hanh suggests to embrace our anger. It's actually even a book title, I think. And if you're serious about it and don't embrace it in order to suffocate it, then that points in the same direction. When Prince Siddhartha, the future Buddha, sat under the tree in Uruvela, in Bokaya, he was attacked by the hosts of Mara, 
the harmful passions, such as aversion, anger, hatred, and many others. And it's said that he transformed all the arrows and spears and other weapons of Mara into flowers by the power of his kindness, of his goodness of heart. Of course, here it's not sentimental love. It's not sentimental metta, but the power of mindful awareness, patient acceptance, interested investigation, and compassionate equanimity. Each time we are able to generate this kind of attitude, the kindness of heart gets strengthened. In the Dhammapada, we find Buddha's famous statement, hatred is never overcome by hatred. Only by kindness is hatred healed. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. That's also what gave Martin Luther King his extraordinary power. We shall never be carried away to act out of hatred. And he stuck to it even when they burned down the churches. And he still remained clear when the people in his personal surrounding got killed. We can practice exactly this in the small incidents to begin with. One prerequisite for this is forgiveness. And here too, in big things as much as in small ones. Mahagosananda, Cambodian monk and peace activist, at some point he was living with 10,000s of refugees on the Cambodian border in Thailand. They all had fled just across the border. Were living there for months or years. They had ex- escaped from the terror of the Khmer Rouge. And he was somewhat in danger there because there were a lot of uh, uh, Khmer Cambodian agents who were looking after for people, searching for people there that, you know, they might harm or kill. So someone gave him a ticket to fly to the West to get out of this whole thing. He accepted it and he went to Bangkok and sold it in Bangkok and used the money to have thousands of brochures printed, brochures with the Metta Sutta in it, the Buddha's discourse on kindness. And he went back with all those Metta brochures or pamphlets back to the camps and passed them out to everyone and began to teach forgiveness and metta. And for days and weeks and months, these ten thousands of people recited the Metta Sutta and the famous verse of the Buddha I read before, hatred is never overcome by hatred. Only by kindness is hatred healed. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. They all had experienced unthinkable horrors and two million deaths, actually. Two million people murdered. And metta, 
and the goodness of heart was or is the only power in the world that could heal, that can heal such unimaginable wounds. In the aspect of forgiveness, formally, there's three aspects that we can practice. To ask forgiveness from others, to forgive ourselves, and to forgive others. To ask others for forgiveness, like whoever I have hurt, disappointed, deceived, or abandoned, intentionally or unintentionally, I ask for forgiveness. And in this, it's important that we go through individual people we may have heard, not just sort of general statements. And if possible and realistic, perhaps even to actually ask them in person for forgiveness. And to forgive oneself, just as I have hurt others. So too, I have hurt, disappointed, deceived, and abandoned myself, intentionally or unintentionally, I forgive myself. This, of course, particularly applies to specific actions, deeds, attitudes. And to forgive others. I myself have been hurt, disappointed, deceived, or abandoned by others in many ways, intentionally or unintentionally. I offer forgiveness. I forgive. And here, too, the more specific and immediate it's related to a certain person, to certain events, the more effective it is. And it doesn't mean that we can always forgive right away. It may take months or years of practicing it if it was a deep wound or a cruel injury. So it's a practice also, it goes together. It's an aspect of metta almost, you could say. Certainly an aspect of the goodness of heart. Asking forgiveness from others, forgive oneself, forgive others. The point here really is to end one's own suffering and to liberate oneself from the prison of aversion, of anger, hatred, and of the attachment to all it hurts. Two former prisoners of war meet again after many years. They exchange old, also painful memories of those days. Then one asks, after all these years, did you ever forgive your enemies, your torturers? Never would I do this, answered the other one. Whereupon the first one remarked, so they still got you imprisoned, right? It's a way of keeping ourselves imprisoned. So forgiveness is really an essential part of the goodness of heart. Here's a poem by Billy Collins. It's perhaps a somewhat more refreshing way of showing how we can deal with annoying, difficult situations in a forgiving and kind and even in this case creative manner it's by Billy Collins it's called another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house 
The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He's barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. I know, and now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, <laughs> as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. <laughs> when the record finally ends, he's still barking sitting there in the oboe section, barking, <laughs> his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence <laughs> to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> it's another way of dealing with difficult situations. No matter whether it's helpful or not, forgiveness cannot be forced. And it's often a continuous process of acceptance of difficult feelings and of letting go of narrow, aversive inner patterns. Someone coined this curious but accurate phrase I like a lot. Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. I think it's great. You know, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. In a way, we do that, isn't it? When we don't forgive. Eva Kort, an Auschwitz survivor, wrote, I deeply believe that all human beings have the right to live without the pain of the past. Most people have a big problem with forgiveness because society expects revenge. It's important to honor the victims. But I often ask myself whether my dead relatives really want me to live with pain and anger up until the end of my life. I do it for myself. Forgiveness is nothing else but an act of self-healing and of self-empowerment. I call it a miracle medicine. It doesn't cost anything, it works, and it has no side effects. So to allow aversion and anger to be mindfully felt without getting lost in it, to investigate them carefully, and even the cultivation of forgiveness Maybe it may not seem to have that much to do with metta, with the goodness of heart. Maybe because we sometimes believe that metta, loving kindness, has to do with a nice, pleasant feeling. You know, the kind of heart opening where we scatter beautiful feelings around, like flowers radiate metta. But mostly goodness of heart is the capacity of our heart and mind to stay present, to stay in contact and stay welcoming in every situation, in each and every person. I think 
it is that beautiful feeling often. But metta and goodness of heart is an attitude that is a lot, that is much wider, much more inclusive than when it feels good. Staying, keeping our heart open is more difficult, more demanding, and not always pleasant. But it's exactly here that the great power of these qualities lies. Martin Luther King said, never succumb to the temptation of being bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the instruments of love. And he very convincingly showed us how to do it. Very inspiring and convincing, I find, was also what um, Ismail and Agla Khatib did. Excuse me. A little bit hot, that day. This is from a newspaper. In November 2005, an Israeli marksman, a soldier, shot and killed Ismail and Agla Khatib's 12-year-old son, Ahmed, in the Palestinian refugee camp of Jenin on the West Bank. Ahmed had carried a toy gun, which the Israeli soldier, soldier mistook for a real one, and he had artists to shoot anyone with a real gun. Ahmed's father, Ismail, had fought against the Israeli occupation from the age of 16. He had been captured and imprisoned. In those days, it was obvious to him that one had to kill and to revenge, though it was important to him to state that he had never actually killed anyone. Meanwhile, as a 43-year-old, he had become a thoughtful and quite wise man who had seen and experienced too much in life as to be easily shaken by things anymore. After the shooting or the murder of his son, he and his wife decided to donate the organs of their kid to Israelis. That brought this a film about this, which is very impressive. It's called The Heart of Jenin. They brought the kid, they rushed the kid to, over to Israel in a big hospital there. And um, he still was alive, but he had been shot in the head, so he was brain dead, but still alive. So the doctor asked the man, you know, all the organs can be used and kids are waiting. What would you, you know, you need to decide relatively quickly. And he called his wife and they talked. And he agreed. First he agreed and said, all the organs except the heart. And then they said, there's a child, there are children waiting for hearts. Through this act, five children's life was saved. It's the love of the children they reply to the question of what had moved them to do this extraordinary act. They need help, no matter which passport they carry or what religion they belong to. An important exercise for us is, of course, the immediate and the formal practice and application of loving-kindness. You're familiar with this. 
the contemplations, the reflections, and the phrases, which can be a support not only in the formal meditation we do here, but also in daily life. Not to remember the phrase that we use in our own personal practice. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be happy and at ease. May you be happy. Whatever it is. Instead of spending a good part of the day with mental or even outer verbal criticizing or complaining or judging or craving, we can remember this attitude of inner goodness. May I, may you, may we be happy. And just a thought does something, changes our, reminds us of the possibility to be here in a different way. We can practice metta in retreats as we do here in our daily meditation. We can actually practice metta for a year instead of vipassana or awareness of the breath. Do just that for a while. Do it wherever we are at any moment. In all this, we need the capacity of mindful, clear discernment so that we notice when we drift off in the so-called near enemy of kindness. Feelings like longing, like wishful thinking, sense desire, or a kind of service in return, love, like maybe, oh, if, if only I were happy, if only such and such were more happy, my son, my wife, whoever, I should be happy. But that attitude is longing, not metta. Or if only this one person, you know, James or Leslie, would be my partner. I love her so much. It's desire or wishful thinking. It's understandable, but it's not metta, and sometimes we mix it up. If you could give me more attention or love or money or time, I'd really love him. Of course, that's also understandable, but that's not quite metta. True goodness of heart or true kindness doesn't require specific conditions. And that's very demanding in many ways. Love somebody the way they are, not the way we would like them to be. Yet true goodness of heart, true kindness, will never make us suffer. That's, I think, a way of finding out whether our feelings are actually metta. Because it's not depending on specific prior requirements. If there's kindness and a person does something I don't like and I suffer, there was an attachment with it, there was an expectation with it, there was a demand with it. So it's very easily visible. As long as they do what we like them to do, it's not so easy to see. But they usually do something we don't like, so it shows. It's interesting. Not depending on specific prior requirements or conditions. That's what makes the goodness of heart beautiful. Let's look at the question, which mind states or which emotions or which mental factors block 
this goodness, this kindness. The most obvious ones are aversion, anger, and hatred. Those very strong forces in the mind. I've been talking about them in the beginning of the talk. Then indifference. Indifference, quite widespread. It's very paralyzing. Kindness needs a climate of true interest. Otherwise, it sort of dies. Laziness, lethargy, lethargy. Kindness depends on aliveness, depends on wakefulness. Otherwise, it will be lacking the necessary energy. Then the opposite of laziness, busyness, being busy, can threaten or destroy kindness. Kindness needs pausing, needs at least some space, or else it will be run over. An obviously important and also difficult point or issue in our fast-moving lives. Quite devastating are feelings of inadequacy, feeling of worthlessness about ourselves. They often block us. When we lack care and appreciation for ourselves, it's difficult to open ourselves for others. Also, one more good reason to do metta for oneself. It's never too much metta for oneself. If it's really genuine, it sort of overflows, it spills over. Perhaps the strongest blocker of kindness is fear. It's the fears, sometimes simply the petty anxieties, which make our hearts narrow. That's why Meher Baba said, true kindness is not for the faint-hearted. We need courage again and again, courage to overcome our cowardice, our timidity, and our laziness. That's why kindness of heart is demanding. What exactly do we need courage for? Or more simply, how do we meet these feelings and emotions which block the kindness within? The answer may sound paradoxical, but we must meet them with kindness. So how is it possible, since these emotions block the kindness, how can we then meet them with kindness? It's actually quite simple, and I'm repeating myself from what I said in the beginning. We have to be willing to feel and see and study these difficult mind states with full attention and full interest. And this interest and this caring itself is already the beginning of kindness. Just the fact of being willing to turn towards that which blocks kindness is already the beginning of allowing for it and opening. To look and feel without prejudice, without judgment, without criticism, or with not too much judgment. Then an inner spaciousness begins to appear in which these difficult, unpleasant states are allowed to be. It's the accepting and tolerant inner attitude in which we meet them. If it is genuine, they will dissolve by themselves in time, simply because the conditions that cause them fall away. 
But if the care and interest are not genuine, and sometimes you know, it happens to us, we have aversive feelings and we use metta, we say nice things, but really the intention is to get rid of them. That's not really metta. You know, we pretend it to be metta. May I be happy. May you be happy. May he be happy. You know, stupid guy. Um, they can tell. If it's not genuine, it doesn't work. But to do this in a genuine way takes courage. Takes courage, interest, energy, respect, and care. And that's exactly the ingredients of kindness of heart. It's easier said than done, but that's why we practice, that's why we exercise us in this way here. After all, it's about inner happiness and inner freedom. The late Cambodian monk I mentioned before, Mahakosananda, he thought that our practice should really work particularly when things get difficult within, outside, or everywhere. He asks, if we can't be happy in spite of our difficulties, then what good is our practice? It's quite a thing to ask, you know. Like, don't we practice in order to get rid of the difficulties and feel good? He thinks, you know, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, then what good is our practice? It's a tough question, but you know, it comes from the right person to make this kind of statement or ask this kind of question. In his early life of horror under the rule of the Khmer Rouge with, I think, 27 of his relatives and most of his monk colleagues murdered, he was one of the most easygoing and happy people I met. It was quite amazing. So he showed that it's possible under the worst circumstances. And of course, we can't do that right away. But it's good to know it's possible. People have managed to go that way. There's another point. which I find interesting and practical in terms of metta, kindness. Sometimes kindness actually is a great feeling. The heart is open, we feel connected, and nobody is bothering us right now. People around us leave us in peace. They have to be in silence, so that helps. What if not? Are they included in my practice of kindness? The endlessly complaining neighbor, the unhappy partner, the gruff, unfriendly clerk at the counter. I quite often find this difficult, sometimes because I simply forget the wrong habits still there. Not because I don't want or I don't want or I, I can't, I forget. My teacher, Geshirapn, often reminded us, he said, there you do all these incredible bodhicitta practices, which he taught us to do. You know, becoming a Buddha for the welfare of all beings. But when one of these beings right next to you 
is slightly annoying, you forget it all so easily. Kabir said, Are you looking for the Holy One? I am in the next seat, my shoulder against yours. I am in the next seat, my shoulder against yours. And Mother Teresa of Calcutta tells about her work bringing sick and dying people in from the street so as to nurse and to heal them or to let them die with some dignity. I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 40,000. That's all pretty obvious. But it also shows where the place of practice is. Never put anyone out of your heart. Even if someone has hurt us deeply or made us really angry, never to put them out of our heart in a final way. We may put them out for the moment, but take them back in. So when we abide in this goodness of heart, this state called beautiful, and encounter suffering in ourselves or with others, then this same attitude of goodness becomes compassion, karuna. When we abide in the same attitude or quality of heart and encounter wholesomeness, happiness or success within us or with others, then it becomes sympathetic joy or appreciation, mudita, the same goodness of heart, the same inner attitude. And when we abide in this attitude of goodness and we encounter those who are in need of things, things we actually have, then it turns into generosity, turns into dana. It's yet the same quality and attitude. The essence, though, of this goodness, this kindness, is wise equanimity. Ultimately, it's wise equanimity which enables us to deal skillfully with the opponent forces of aversion, of anger, of hatred, and the near enemies of longing, of desire, of craving. It's wise equanimity as well, which guards metta, loving kindness and compassion against sentimentality. And it's yet wise equanimity which protects us from getting related or disappointed by the success and or the failures of our kind or compassionate activities. So it's really wise equanimity which turns our good intentions into genuine kindness, into a state of heart and mind called beautiful. I'd like to close with Tartang Tulku on love and compassion. Goodness of heart is like sunlight, awakening and bringing joy to beings 
Its beauty is like a rainbow, lifting the hearts of all who see it. Thank you. If we can just sit for two or three more minutes. Thank you for your interest in listening. It's 45 minutes for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.